Well, brothers and sisters, the 90s and early 2000s generic Christianity catechized us poorly on how to read passages like this. You see, the 90s and the early 2000s generic Christianity catechized us with a four-letter slogan, WWJD. See, those four letters were everywhere. T-shirts, bumper stickers, books, and bracelets. You name it, they had it. And those four letters stood for what would Jesus do? That was the question. And the implication of having one of those WWJD bracelets was you would look down at it anytime you were in a jam, anytime you were in a temptation, and you would just read, what would Jesus do? And you would will yourself into obeying harder and, and working more and being a better Jesus-like person, all of your own strength. You'd be like Jesus just by reading, what would Jesus do? And the worst part is that that became an hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a way to read scripture. So those four letters became a prism by which we started interpreting scripture and so that became a hip way to read the Gospels. People started reading these records of Jesus' life, these records of what he has done for us through that lens as a mere moral example. It became a moral example theology, a series of nice examples of how to live a good life. And people would come to beautiful passages like this one, and they would preach terrible sermons, five to ten points of ten ways to resist the devil next time you're in a temptation, just like Jesus. What would Jesus do? But brothers and sisters, this passage was inspired by the Holy Spirit to show us something so much more and deeper than shallow moralism. I'm not saying that being like Jesus is a bad idea. We should do that. We should, by the power of the Holy Spirit who works in us, to make us look more like Christ. We, we should try to be more Christ-like by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing to want to be like Jesus. I'm not saying don't go be like Jesus. But what I am saying is that that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about a different question. What the Holy Spirit wants us to ask from this passage is not WWJD, what would Jesus do? What this passage wants us to ask is WHJDFMATLA. What has Jesus done for me as the last Adam? And the answer to that is that Jesus kept the law for you. This passage is about how Jesus as the last Adam and the true son of Israel kept the law for you. He cast the serpent out of the garden and he won new creation for you. And that's all that was promised in Genesis 3. What God promised in Genesis 3, he kept here in Luke 4. And what that means for you and me is that we can rest in the finished work of Christ the lawkeeper. Because Christ the lawkeeper did what Adam didn't and what Israel couldn't. Christ the lawkeeper kept the covenant of works for you. He kept do this and live. And that means that those of us who belong to him will live. So we'll look at that in three points this morning. Three points. First, Israel, Adam, and Jesus. Secondly, Jesus fights the snake. And third, new creation gained. Israel, Adam, and Jesus, Jesus fights the snake, and new creation gained. So first, Israel, Adam, and Jesus. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus has just been baptized 
He's been in the Jordan. He's been led in the wilderness for 40 days, and he's being tempted by the devil. Now think back with me to the Old Testament for a minute. What other people in the Old Testament does the New Testament say was baptized in the cloud and sea? What group of people was baptized in the cloud and sea and then led by the Holy Spirit through the wilderness? For 40 years. It's the people of Israel. The people of Israel were led in the wilderness for 40 years by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And that's the Holy Spirit leading his people. In our passage this morning, Jesus is repeating what Israel has gone through. He's been baptized, and then the Holy Spirit leads him in the wilderness for 40 days. This is a rewind and rewrite of history. And Jesus is going through the test that Israel went through and failed. The scriptures tell us in Exodus 16:4 that the manna in the wilderness was a test. The man in the wilderness was a test. It was a test to see whether Israel would believe and obey the word of God. And so Jesus goes through that same test. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for a food test. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus through the same test that Israel went through, a hunger test. Israel hungers and complains. Jesus hungers and obeys. And that's why it says he was hungry. Israel is tempted by the devil in the wilderness and failed so that God loathed that generation for 40 years and killed them off in the wilderness. Jesus goes through 40 days in the wilderness and he comes out alive. And notice how little Luke records about those 40 days. The wilderness wanderings of the Israelites take four books. It's four books of complaining and temptation and more complaining, and they try God at every turn. Immediately after God brings them through the sea and he drowns Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, the Israelites get out, they sing the song of Moses in the sea, and then for three chapters, it's I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry again. They haven't even made it to Sinai, and they're complaining three times. And that's just the first three chapters, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus gets two verses here. He's in the wilderness and he's out of the wilderness. No complaining, only hungry and obeying. So Jesus follows the Spirit's leading into the wilderness. He trusts the Lord without complaining and then he comes out. Israel failed to trust, complained, and then they died in the wilderness. Jesus trusts the Father completely, endures the test, and comes out. But the rewind doesn't stop there. So it doesn't just stop with a repeat of Israel. The rewind goes back even farther in time. So Jesus doesn't just go through the test Israel went through and failed. He goes through the test that Adam went through and failed. Look with me at the genealogy in chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy of Jesus, a lot of unreadable names, so I'm not going to try. But verses 23 through 38, do something weird with the genealogy of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus in Luke actually starts with Jesus and goes backward in time. So it's a rewind and rewrite. It starts with Jesus and it goes back in time to Adam. Adam, the son of God. Now, a little earlier in Luke chapter 3, we also find out somebody else is the beloved son of God. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22 Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, 
You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the well-beloved son of God. And that's the father's declaration to Jesus at his baptism. You are my son. And now the test that Jesus is going to go through is the same test that Adam went through. Is Jesus going to believe the revealed word of God and obey it? That's the test Adam went through. It's the test Jesus endures. Jesus has just been put in a spot now where he is all alone. He is representing humanity. He has been given directions on what he is and isn't supposed to eat. Okay, so no eating this thing. And then he's given a test of whether he's going to believe the word and obey it. And now he has to pass that test. Am I going to listen to the snake or am I going to obey the father? This is a rewind to the temptation of Adam. And that's why Jesus is in a wilderness. Adam had a garden. Adam was supposed to expand that garden and bring the earth under his dominion after passing the test of the tree. But Adam failed the test of the tree. And so he is cast out into the wilderness at the end of his temptation. And that's where Jesus is starting. Jesus is in the wilderness that Adam earned. God kicked him out, Adam out to the wilderness, and that's where Jesus is. Adam had his pick of fruit. Adam was in this garden with every fruit you can imagine except for that one. Jesus is hungry because that's what Adam earned. God kicked Adam out of the garden into sweating hard and fighting the ground for bread. Bread. Adam had rivers and trees. Jesus has rocks. And Jesus is, is standing in the place that Adam earned. But then as the last Adam, he's going to earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life by passing this test. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus fights the snake. Jesus fights the snake. Like we noticed a moment ago, Jesus is going through the same temptation as Adam. He's going through the temptation of whether he's going to doubt or obey the word of God. Now turn back with me to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will really die. Now, what's the temptation? Genesis 3, 1 through 5. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not really die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, back in our passage in Luke 4, the temptation is the same. The temptation is, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. See, the issue is not what Satan is asking Jesus to do. It's why he's asking him to do it. It's not the what, it's the why. Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. Jesus stood on the rock when Moses struck it. 
And Jesus made water come out of the rock for his people. Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 81 that promises he can make honey from the rock for his people. And Jesus even tells the Pharisees that if people weren't praising him, he would make the stones do it. The testimony of John the Baptist is that the Lord is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. So at any other point in time, Jesus can do whatever he wants with stones. But not right now. See, right now, Satan is asking Jesus to do more than just turn a a rock into bread. He's asking God, he's asking Jesus to disobey and doubt the word of God. Satan is asking Jesus to doubt the declaration he's just gotten at his baptism. You are my beloved son. And Satan is asking Jesus the same question he asked in the garden. Did God really say, can we test this to see if it's true? Can we really even trust that what God says is true? It's not the what, it's the why. But in response, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, it is written. He responds with scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus responds to the question of whether or not God has really said with quoting something God has said. And think about this for a minute. This is kind of a weird moment. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He could make up scripture right there, but he doesn't because this is the test he's passing as the true son of Israel and as the last Adam, the test of whether or not he will believe the revealed word of God. And so he quotes scripture to pass the test. He has absolute confidence and obedience to the published revealed word of God. And Jesus passes this test where Adam failed because he gives the response, Adam didn't. Adam says, yeah, snake, you're right. Maybe God hasn't really said. Jesus says, yes, God has really said. Adam says, "Eh, maybe we should test this. Jesus says, God's word is the rule for my life. Adam says, yeah, well, we might as well prove this. Jesus says, I really am the son of God, not because I have to prove it to you, but because God said so. It's obedience and trust of the published, revealed word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus responds, or he trusts that the word is sufficient, not only as a revelation of God's character, or of will, but also of God's character. And he trusts that what the word says about God is true, even if it's not, uh, even if it's not evident. He trusts that the word says what it says about who God is and what obedience he requires, and then he obeys it. So Jesus here is the better and the last Adam. Jesus is the last Adam who obeys. And this brings us to the next temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours People ask the question of whether Satan was actually able to do this, and the answer is ultimately no. Satan doesn't own the world. He's not God. He doesn't determine what happens. But he does hold every unbelieving heart captive. And so what Satan is trying to do here is tempt Jesus away from saving his own and instead asking him to join him in tyranny over the souls of the damned. He's asking Christ to go away from the cross and still get the glory, to avoid the cross and still get the glory. And this is a real temptation. 
We know that getting the glory he deserves without going through the suffering and agony and death of the cross is a real temptation for Jesus. Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, your will be done. This is a temptation for Jesus. Cross without glory is a temptation. But that's not all that's going on here. By tempting Jesus to cross without glory, Satan is also, again, implicitly testing Jesus about whether or not he's going to doubt the word of God at his baptism. Notice the phrase again, if you are the son of God, you should do this. He's asking, if you're really the son of God, why is the father making you do this? Why is he asking you to do this? Be the king without being the suffering king. How can you trust God's word and God's character if this is what he's asking? God isn't treating you like the thing I, or he says you are. So what you should do is disobey the father and I will treat you like the thing I say you are not. It's a switcheroo. Bow to me and I will treat you like the thing I say you're not. But Jesus again replies with absolute trust in the word of God instead of the devil's lies. He knows that the father will glorify him in the time and place and manner that the Father chooses. And in the meantime, the published word of God is the Father alone is supposed to be worshiped and glorified. And so Jesus once again succeeds where Adam fails. He trusts and obeys the word of God over the temptation of Satan. Adam said, well, maybe I should get glory that's not mine. Jesus says, maybe I should obey the Father and lay away glory that is mine. He's the better Adam. But this brings us to the final temptation. Read with me again, verses 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is Satan's final attempt to get Jesus to disobey and doubt the word of God. But this time, he's using what actually worked on Adam and Eve. It's the craftiest weapon in his arsenal. In his arsenal. He's bringing out scripture twisting. Satan is using scripture twisting here, and that's what worked in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, what does Satan do? What would Satan do? He tells Eve that it's because the tree is what God says it is, that, he sh that they should disobey God. So because the tree is what God says it is, you should disobey and eat it. He's taken the published revelation of God the Father, and he said, given the premises, jump to a different conclusion. He's, he's taken a passage that's supposed to inspire humble trust in the Father's will, and then he uses it to try and get them to exalt themselves. So the truth should lead to humility and worship, and Satan says, the truth is the truth, therefore glorify yourself. And that's what Satan is doing here too. He's taken Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a, is a psalm where it takes the truth that is meant to inspire humble confidence and worship and glory to the Father. And he takes that psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Satan has taken Jesus to the top of the temple. He's taken that scripture and then he said, jump, literally, to the wrong conclusion. But more than that, think of who else is supposed to be glorified in that temple they're standing on. 
who's supposed to be glorified, held up between two angels in that temple, in the center of it. It's God. God himself should be glorified in the temple. And so Satan is again, finally and fully asking Jesus to doubt and disobey the word of God at his baptism. He's saying, if you're really the son of God, why don't you go be the one behind the veil? If you're really the son of God, why are you being forced to learn through what you're suffering? If you're really the son of God, why do you have to shuffle around in this tired and hungry, dusty frame when you could be flying? And if you're really the son of God, you should make use of your majestic dignity and stop voluntarily going through a life of suffering and weakness. Well, in response, what does Jesus do? Again, Jesus responds with absolute confidence and obedience to the published word of the Father. He trusts the Father's word. He trusts that the word is true and doesn't need to be tested. And he trusts that the Father's will is better than any wrongly gotten glory he could get from the snake. And that's why he responds the way he does in verse 12. Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil just tempted Jesus to test whether God's word is really true. And Jesus responds by taking his stated confidence in the word up a notch. For the past couple of temptations, Jesus has responded to the temptation with, it is written, as if to say, this is the word and I'm going to obey it. But now Satan is on the, it is written wagon. Satan says in verse 10, it is written. And then he misquotes and twists scripture. And so what Jesus does is he takes it up a notch and he says, it is said. I submit to the written word of God as the authority for my life because it's God breathed and it's true. I need to believe and obey this word. And I am the Lord, your God. You're not supposed to be testing. Not because I have to prove it to you, but because God said it. This is a stark contrast with Adam and Eve. This is a stark contrast with what Israel does in the wilderness. Adam and Eve and Israel join the serpent. They lend their ear to the serpent and give in and try to stand as judges over the word of God. Jesus says what my father says is true and I'm not going to test it. Israel decides to complain and doubt whether what God has says is true. And Jesus trusts his father's word completely. Adam failed to keep the law. Adam was cast out of the garden and he lost the right to build new creation for you to live with God in. Israel failed to keep the law and they died in the wilderness. And even in the land, Israel disobeyed the law and they were spit out. They were spit out of the land and the land was a picture of new creation. And Israel's failure to keep that law was a picture of Adam's failure to keep that law. But the good news is that Jesus kept the law for you. Jesus obeyed the covenant of works. He kept do this and live. And he defeated the serpent. He cast the snake out. And because of that, he won the right to build you new creation and live there with you forever. And this brings us to our third and final point, new creation gained. Read with me again, verse 13. New creation gained, point three. We'll start at verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. The devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Satan knows at this moment that Jesus already won. Jesus already won, and Satan knows he needs to retreat until Gethsemane. And that's because when Satan quoted Psalm 91, 
Satan quoted verses 11 and 12, but he conveniently left out verse 13. See, the very next verse in Psalm 91 is this. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Who tramples the serpent underfoot? It's Jesus. Satan knows what's happening as a result of Christ's victory. He knows his head's about to be crushed and he needs to retreat. Psalm 91 says it, and Psalm 91 was repeating that promise of Genesis 3, that God has promised a better Adam who's going to keep the covenant of works, who's going to earn new creation for you. This is the promised Messiah. This is the head crusher. This is the serpent slayer. This is the savior. And he's here and the serpent is fleeing him. And Christ's victory means the devil's defeat, and Satan knows it. Satan knows what's going on here. He knows Christ just won, and he knows that Christ is going to advance, and Satan knows that he needs to retreat. This is Satan's tactical retreat, and Satan is trying to rally his forces, and he's going to try and win at Gethsemane and win at the cross, but we know Satan won't win there either. Satan's retreat here is the first retreat of many to come. And that also means that this is the beginning of Christ's kingdom and conquest. He just won new creation for us. And he starts winning people in verses 14 through 15. This is new creation breaking in. Look with me at verses, the last two verses of our passage. Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Jesus gets into Galilee and news about him starts spreading. The beginning of Christ's rightly gotten glory begins immediately after he rejects the temptation to get glory wrongly. As soon as Jesus rejects the devil's offer for all the wrongly gotten glory of all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus has the word about him start to spread. Jesus just resisted getting glory wrongly in the temple, but what's happening now? He's glorified by all in their synagogues. Jesus begins even at the end of chapter four to cast out demons because his kingdom is coming. It ends in New Jerusalem. It ends in Revelation 21. Christ brings down the heavenly city from above and lives with them forever, but it starts here in Luke four. It starts with Jesus casting out the snake and earning new creation for you. And that's what Luke 4 is about. Luke 4 is about the last Adam and the true son of Israel. Jesus is the promised law keeper and he kept the covenant of works. And the call today from our passage is the call that screams to us from every part of scripture, believe in him. God wants you to hear this passage and trust that Jesus is the last Adam and the true son of Israel who is your perfect righteousness before the father. And he is your perfect holiness before the father. And he is the perfectly obedient one whose obedience on your behalf is yours by faith alone. And so God wants you to read this passage today and say with Dr. Machen, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope for me without it. When you go before the throne on that last day and, Christ, er, and, and the Father asks you, why should I let you in? Have you died the death you deserve in Adam? You say, Jesus died it for me. But then he says, should I let you into life with me forever? Have you earned it by obeying the law that Adam broke? And you say, Jesus earned it for me. He cast out the snake. He earned new creation. And it's mine in him by faith. 
In Adam, we failed to keep God's law and trust God's word. Christ has kept and obeyed and trusted on our behalf. In Adam, we died by Christ's obedience. We are made alive and we will live with him forever because we are righteous in him. We are clothed with his righteousness as we prayed this morning. And God looks at you as if you had obeyed like Christ obeyed for you in Luke 4. In Adam, we failed to stay in the garden and build the kingdom of God. In Christ, Adam, the last Adam, has one and is building what we never could. And so in our failures this week and in the car ride this morning, the call is to look to Christ who earned paradise for us. Christ earned paradise for you. The call is to look to him not just in his death, but in his life. You are made righteous by the life of Christ. And in looking to Christ, we know that his finished work is our beautiful robe of righteousness before the Father. And we can trust that the God whose character is to provide for us, his character is that to us in Christ. And we can trust that even though we have failed to resist the devil, you and I failed in Adam to cast out the serpent, Christ has done it. And because Christ has done it, God is working in you by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform you into the image of his well-beloved son. And so one day you're going to be like him. You're going to be like him when you're with him in the new creation he earned for us. What has Jesus done for me as the last Adam? The answer is he earned new creation and life in the world to come. He fought the snake, he obeyed the law, and he did that so that you and I can love and fully enjoy him forever. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.